Couched lets you in on what leading cultural influencers and psychoanalysts are thinking about the world today. We will feature conversations with artists, scientists, and changemakers about our current political climate, social injustices, and our struggle to find sanity in an increasingly uncertain world. Hello, I am Dr. Billy Pivnik. And I'm Dr. Romy Redding. And welcome back to Couched. We are thrilled to kick off Season 3 with guests Maggie Nelson, MacArthur Genius, and author of the New York Times bestseller, The Argonauts, and most recently, On Freedom, Four Songs of Care and Constraint. She is joined by Dr. Ken Corbett, esteemed psychologist, psychoanalyst, and author of several books, including Boyhood, Rethinking Masculinities, and Murder Over a Girl, Gender, Justice, Junior High. Please go to our website to read more about their many accomplishments and published work, www.couchpodcast.org. Thanks, Billy. Welcome back, Ken. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you. And thank you, Maggie, for your willingness to join Three Shrinks on a Podcast. <laughs> it's very intimidating. That's something. <laughs> but here I am. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's great to have the both of you with us. And we want to welcome back our returning listeners and welcome our first-time listeners. So I want to simply start by saying Billy and I have been reveling in the works that you both shared with us. And to our listeners, we agree that we would read On Freedom, Four Songs of Care and Constraint. And then Ken, he shared a very soulful clinical and theoretical paper, which is forthcoming in JAPA, the Journal of the American Psychoanalytic Association. And this is on the importance of play and playing and how it can essentially profoundly alter us in our relation to the other, maybe even capital O other. And we're hoping that today's conversation will spark some curiosity and desire in our listeners to seek out and engage with your work and make of it what they will. We're so eager to dive in and find out, along with the two of you, how your ideas intersect. Why don't we start with you, Maggie? Sure. Well, I do a lot of different kinds of writing, and I think something that I think Ken and I have to talk about and in common is a kind of interest in different forms of creative life. This book is a more critical endeavor, which is an idiom I sometimes work in. And I'd actually started it before I wrote The Argonauts, and I'd been interested mm -hmm. in just following the words freedom and also the word care as they were circulating in different spheres, as you've mentioned, art the art world, conversations about sexual freedom, conversations about drugs and drug addiction and in drug literature, and then vis-a-vis -vis climate change. And so there were actually other categories as well that didn't make it into the final four because yeah. life is short and fruition feels good. Thank you. Ken, did you want to give us a little synopsis of your paper and then you can find your way into the conversation with each other? Okay. In keeping with what Maggie was saying about projects that take some time and are sometimes interrupted by yet other projects, this is a project that I've been working on now for, I guess, four or five years. The title that this paper has, which is Play Changes Us, mm -hmm. which has to do with the ways in which capacities for illusion and the way the psychic significance of illusion, how that helps to shape us and shape our relations with others. And without it, I guess, kind of to 
bounce off of Maggie's work here for a moment. Mm -hmm. Without that, I don't think you have either care or freedom. And so it's my bid for illusion, I guess is what I would say. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So Maggie, I can start if you'd like. There were three things that I identified that I thought it would be fun to talk about. You may have some other things, undoubtedly too. But maybe I just would start with this, is that one of the, I guess I would call it a theme, I'm not sure that's exactly the right way to say it, that occurs and recurs throughout the book is your, and I think desire, for what you call creating new norms. And what I was especially taken with in the book throughout the four different songs had to do with the way in which, I guess one way to say it is the way you keep company with a variety of ideas and even contradictory and conflicting ideas. And you will sometimes take a stance, other times not, in relationship to those ideas. And this syncs up with a dimension of play and playing that's always very intriguing to me which is thought of in psychoanalytic language as transitional space. And the degree to which in playing, in order to play, you have to be able to enter into an intermediate zone where something can be real and unreal at the same time. And I can't help but think about what's happening in the world at this moment as Russia invades Ukraine just yesterday and this morning. That kind of heterogeneity of stances within groups and that kind of work to build intermediate space in order to, at the very least, negotiate, if not get beyond that, is, I think, a wonderful dimension of this book. And I'll just stop there at that point. Yeah, thank you so much for saying all that and for pointing out so many of those things on a just a kind of I guess, literary level or something. I think it was really interesting for me that in reading your play Changes Us that I felt like in some ways it gave me language to describe this project in ways I hadn't really described it before. And one of those was just this idea about how like interpretation can be playing, how interpretation can be part of the play, but not the kind of top that comes down to put a lid on it. And I think that it's partly why some people really like my critical writing and some people are very frustrated by it and why that frustration that people might feel doesn't really bother me (laughs) very much because it feels like it's a misunderstanding of the experiment in a certain way and I think they're not for arguments for chapters you know they're kind of like they're not meant to be stodgy in that way although they allow themselves argumentative and stodgy moments but that's that kind of tonal variation is meant to be in a kind of chorus of something in service of a different, a larger project, which I would say in a way is about keeping company. (laughs) And I would say is also about bearing, not knowing, even as we can know certain things and say them. Sometimes I will marshal things into play and sometimes I will really say, kind of offer an interpretation or a judgment. Other times it's more about letting in different things into the room and just kind of seeing how in associative company they like what notes they pick up in each other. So I never really said this is a book of criticism. This is a book of, you know, whatever. I never have said anything. It's like, oh, it's a book of 
poetry per se, like that kind of designation would come very late down the line. But I think that's in part to preserve, I mean, which is what the other essay, the essay, the flow essay that you sent, which I picked up on in there too, that there's a kind of the difficulty of establishing and maintaining creative life that the subject of that essay is also and about holding anxieties at bay long enough to make anything or say anything or entertain anything or put enough things in company is really also something I wanted to foreground as opposed to bury in On Freedom. Hmm. Hmm. But I'm riveted by this idea that interpretation can become part of the play. I think it's really fascinating and how it I don't totally understand it as a, like, I understand it in your clinical context. And I, as always, maybe this is like a theme of your podcast, I don't know. But when you drag something out of one sphere and into another, you know, you get like, you enliven certain things and then like create other new problems in the drag. So I'm interested in like how interpretation wouldn't serve as a negation of paradox to be brought into the play. Yeah, I'm hoping that, Ken, that you'll pick up on that question. I mean, there's so many things you could pick up on, but as this idea of the paradox of interpretation and how it will inhabit these different spheres in similar ways and different ways. Right, right. Well, if I understood Maggie correctly there, I think what she's raising is the potential for interpretation to foreclose paradox. And in fact, I think that is a common phenomenon. And it's certainly a common clinical phenomenon. And one of the things that Winnicott points out really well, it has to do with the need to stay within playing, the actual present progressive action of playing, as opposed to standing aside and naming the content. And in fact, one of the things that Winnicott points out is that an interpretation that's given too soon, or an interpretation that comes from on high. Sorry, now I'm forgetting the exact word he uses, but he calls it something in the vein of it's corrupt. Mm -hmm. Um, It it actually corrupts the exchange. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering if for the sake of our listeners, you could find a way to describe a little bit of the play or something about the play so that we understood what you meant by an interpretation of the play. Sure, sure. What I write about is my work with a four-year-old boy who came to me after his mother had encountered a a kind of break. I wouldn't call it a breakdown, but a break after the birth of her second child. And when he first came to see me, the first opening gambit of the work was quite flat. The play just didn't really... He would sift through the toys. He would do things on his own, but never include me. And Eventually, we found our way to one another through some play with a set of dinosaurs, which went variously well and variously not so well. Because, in fact, at one point, I entered in to interpret too quickly, and the play shut down. And then I reinstituted that dinosaur play. And then unbidden, and I think this goes along with what Maggie was saying about the unknown, and anyone who's either been in analysis or psychotherapy or has been a psychotherapist or a psychoanalyst knows that there's a lot of time spent unknowing in that project and that you have to survive that. And not only you have to survive it, you have to encourage it. You have to let that flourish. And so anyway, what I'm saying here is that 
out of that unknown, one day he arrives, he says to me, be a dog, fall down, shake and die, something to that effect. And I became the dog who fell on the ground and died. And this then became, for about six months, a narrative that developed between the two of us. And I believe it was probably only into the fourth month or the fifth month of the play did I begin to actually comment on what was going on. And I made very simple comments that had to do with the dog needing someone to take care of him, for example, or the dog was hungry or cold. I kept them, he's four years old after all, I kept things very simple. And again, in the way of unknowing, at a certain juncture, he moved out of that play and moved into a mode of playing that was much more enlivened and lively. And that, to me, I think was indicative of us actually having done what he had come to see me in relation to. We worked together for a little while longer, but that was the work. I was going to say those examples can, I think, line up with what I believe, Maggie, you were talking about, interpretation within the play versus from on high and coming down. Yeah, I mean, I have a question, Ken. I was thinking about how a lot of the words, and I concur in a non-psychoanalytic, psychological, psychologist way, but, you know, I concur with a lot of the, I mean, kind of cheering a lot of the things that you say in the play essay, while also noting that certain words like shared reality and things like that have become these new buzzwords in like the age of disinformation and things where people get very worried about illusion and they get very worried about notions of shared reality being inhibiting or oppressing. And I just wondered, I thought it would be interesting and Mm. instructive for me to hear you talk about how, what the difference is between this kind of play that, as you say, at one point, you know, repair does not always happen in reality. Perhaps it rarely does. And, the, you know, the deep importance of like what that space means and what illusion means and the bid you make for it, how you differentiate it from a kind of from the fears people have about what if we're all living in a self-invented meta, you know, reality state, none of which correspond to each other's and they're all just clusters of projections and made meaning. How do you speak to that gap? Well, one of the things I would say there is that it's really important to distinguish between illusion and projection. Mm -hmm. They're not the Mm -hmm. same thing. And that illusion is a more commodious, I think I would say, phenomenon and a psychic phenomenon. And it is, again, there's a phrase of Winnicott's that I like a great deal, Mm -hmm. where he talks about the rest Mm -hmm. and repair that can happen in illusion. And he certainly would not say that about defensive projection. There's very little rest and repair that's happening in defensive projection. Instead, Mm -hmm. there is just the opposite. Mm -hmm. It's generally a way to offload anxiety. Now, that is not to say that within the context of illusion and or within the Mm -hmm. context of play, there is not anxiety that is actually found and discovered and played and shared, right? I think somewhere, it may not be in this paper, but I'm fond of saying that there's in play, there's as much blood as there is glitter. Mm -hmm. We have a way, I think, of thinking about play Mm -hmm. as party balloons Mm -hmm. and confetti, but it's a much more serious business that's related to something you 
went straight to, and mm-hmm. I thought quite rightly, related to paradox and sustaining paradox. Mm-hmm. Illusion is right there about sustaining paradox, the paradox mm-hmm. between that which can be real and unreal, whereas projection mm-hmm. is actually often shutting down paradox. I mean, I wonder, I guess my, yeah, I guess that's kind of my question too, like is, I mean, for me as somebody who writes a lot about art and then could arguably be, see myself as someone who creates art, although I, I don't, uh, writing is a confused, <laughs> confused thing to me as to like what it is. I mean, I get, I'm not knowing like what, what is it that we are doing? But it's easy for me, and I, th- I think I sent you an essay about a painter, Tala Madani, who, to whom play is very important. And I think it's easy for me to see play and illusion making and sustained paradox and blood and glitter. It's really easy for me to see that in art. It's harder for me to see it in other realms of adult interaction. And I wonder if you could illuminate for me what some of those might huh. be, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So do you have a question about a realm where you don't see that or I think it's more just that the kind of case you make for the for play, you know, and, and after Winnicott and is so is so exciting and like contagiously convincing and alluring that it makes one wonder what are more spaces in daily life in which play can be engaged beyond with one's children, with whom, as you're saying, you know, one's mm-hmm. capacity to play the part <laughs> you know, is conditioned upon one's day. And also they right, grow up right. and they don't do that anymore. But yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm just, I, I just didn't know if you, yeah, had thoughts about it, taking it on the road. Yeah. Well, I, th- I actually think, sure, like one place where we could think about it is sex, which you undertake in mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. second song, right? And we could think about the realm of sex that is, at one point you, that within sex there can be a kind of play of extremity. There can be a play of wildness or defiance or taboo or absurdity. And if that's not held, at least for some partners or some people coming together in the play of sex, if it's not held within the paradox, right? If it's not held within that space, it actually has the capacity to, as you, I think, point out, not necessarily in relation to this, but, but that it, it can rip it apart, right? That if without that recognition of the social exchange, the fabric doesn't hold. And one of the things you do really well, I think, is make a case for what I started to think of as queer play. I don't know if I'd want to exactly put that in quotes, but the role that queer community has had investigating these social norms in some way, not, well, investigating them and challenging them, right? And fragment, there's rupture that happens and and new norms are made. I was associating to when you asked the question and after Ken was talking about sex, also activism is perhaps a place where that need to sustain paradox and the real and unreal and the play comes together. And I have a quote that I had jotted down that I wanted to read at some point. And I think this may actually capture it. One of the many lines in which you exhibit this paradoxical dialectic type of thinking, a way of thinking, and this may speak to activism in this way. Uh, no, this is the line. 
No measure of empowerment will extinguish the awfulness of the world, nor should it delimit our protest of it. And to me, I feel like that's one of those beautiful encapsulations of paradox. And I imagine that in inhabiting that specific paradox, one has to be thinking at some level in activist work, those who also are fully committed and all the way in, right? They live it day in and day out. This is really going to happen, and this is never going to happen. This is really making a change, and mm-hmm. nothing's happening here. Something mm-hmm. like that. I may not quite be capturing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of my book began with, I mean, maybe that is, I think that is actually really interesting because it, with that notion of the real and the unreal that, Ken, you're talking about is in play, that I think that so many activist accounts may, or, or so many narratives that people might tell might begin with like, we really thought the revolution was nigh. Like we really thought all human relations were about to undergo a reset or a restructuring. And then we realized that it was not. And I think the difference that I point out in my book between moments of liberation and practices of freedom vis-a-vis Foucault and the introduction was really about not to not that one might never want to get involved in a faith that one's actions might bring about radical change. That's not the point. But the point is more, to me, it felt like without delineating the difference between those things and highlighting to a certain extent the practice of freedom as much as the moment of liberation, then there's a kind of crestfallenness or a dispiritedness or a deflation or a disappointment that that can be difficult for people. I mean, maybe maybe mostly young people, but it depends to reboot from, to go on. And so in that sense, I do think that the real and the unreal about the claims that we make are helpful, which is how I tend to think about claims that I might support about like total abolition of certain things with my knowing that my support of such would be a strategic thing (laughs) to bring about change that I want to have happen, but it might not be such as the same one that I'm naming exactly, you know? So Maggie, I thought that your use of metaphor, particularly in the last song, the one about climate change, was really effective. You were talking about your son being the first boy to ever love a train in a kind of tongue-in-cheek kind of way. And of course, I had mm-hmm. a son who also was... Was the first person yes. to ever love a train. <laughs> yes, exactly. And all of our <laughs> vacations involve visiting steam trains and various places. Yeah. So I totally related <laughs> to your starting that chapter that way. It was very playful. <laughs> but the metaphor of the climate crisis being a runaway train has a kind of rhythm and engagement to it that was playful, even though it was the most serious, most poignant Mm -hmm. topic. I mean, you also had a moment that you shared about you and your son having this conversation, right? About, well, at least we've had a good life together if doom comes. I mean, that is so hard to even think that thought, let alone to write it. And I'm just wondering if your aesthetics and your use of metaphor helped you write it in some way, because that's kind of the things, one of the things we face as analysts is like, Mm -hmm. what language do we need to use Mm -hmm. to create Mm -hmm. the playfulness to hear something Mm -hmm. that's almost unbearable? Mm -hmm. I mean, you guys are, as you said at the beginning, welcome to talking to three shrinks. And I said it was intimidating, but this is partly why is that, you know, everything I say, I'm going to be like, I feel like I'm I'm, I'm speaking a disavowal, but I was going to say, I don't think it's hard for me to... (laughs) voice or bear the unbearable. Why, how could that be the case? But I would say that I am a writer who 
you know, I have struggled more with my a kind of, I wouldn't call it pathological, but I would just call it very insistent, heading straight for the heart of the bad thing, you know, like I've written two books about sexual violence that I joked was like eight years of circle, literally circling the wound. And like, so I think in that way, in some ways, maybe what you're talking about with the train was actually a different project, which was not necessarily bearing or like finding something to talk about the bad thing, but was actually maybe more about again, back to paradox, how do we actually handle the fact that something that's bringing us great joy may also be an agent of our destruction, but it doesn't mean that one chooses, <laughs> like one doesn't choose bad train, good train. You know, one may say we need better modes of energy production, <laughs> or one may say the history of, you know, slavery and indentured labor and of the railroads is horrific. I mean, what one may say all those things, while also being able to understand and in some ways pay homage to why, whether it's a train or a skyscraper or, you know, a pyramid or why like grand measures of human invention make individual small human bodies feel, maybe your phrase, Ken, I can't remember what it is, but a kind of like corporeal enlivening in a kind of mirror neurons kind of a way, although the, the object in question might not have neurons, but like those are really those are like really real and there does exist the sublime there even exists the industrial sublime i think all that i think to me it was more like that thing about the trains was more of, of a holding container to think about life itself which is the thing that brings death which is also that also has these great sublimities and joys along the way but also letting go of the idea that for the object to be made good it would have to be one that brought no harm or was purified and that was kind of more my project in that chapter precisely because that was also folded into this feeling that there are evil villains in the form of oil executives and things that have brought about our fate but we're all utterly complicit in, in this as well, not in the way of we should self-flagellate, but we just understand and have a certain measure of compassion for uh, finding oneself on a stair in the middle of these various complicities. And anyway, so I think, and that how could that as an attitude that had more compassion in it be a better basis for facing the problem, you know? Yeah, the complicity intriguing, it really intrigued me, is shared by you and your son. And he uses actually the pluperfect. He says, we will have had a good life, right? And mm. it made me think about the work of Maurice Pry, <laughs> an analyst of the University of Virginia, who talks about what he calls a pluperfect errand. And that Often it is the case that children, mm -hmm. some, something is passed on generationally, and it's an errand then that the child has to run, as mm. it were. This is not mm. exactly that. It, perhaps it is. Perhaps he mm. understands mm. that there is something about the climate, climate change, something that he will have to do. Maybe he'll have to take a different kind of active stand. I, I don't think that would be unusual for many children at this point in time. That he says this to you with tears in his eyes. And so what is what happens there is, mm -hmm. you know, he says, we'll go together. We will have had a good life. It's a exceptionally mm -hmm. loving and related moment. He's not left 
to sort of go forward mm-hmm. into the dark future alone. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's really well, it's nice to hear, but it's also important, I think, in that, you know, I was really concerned in that chapter and, and generally concerned as well that in order to manage our own anxiety, yeah. adults come up with narratives that may be unlivable for children. And I don't, and I find that happening with the climate all the time. And I feel like there's a kind of divide. I don't want there to be a divide between those of us who regularly talk to children and those of us who don't about it. But I just find it, I'm kind of like increasingly, like my apertures have just become very low for an unrelated, unenmeshed conversation across generations about the errand. Now, if I could, I just want to say I'm a big fan of your your advocacy for children, and especially your advocacy for children in queer space, where this has often been a, a source <laughs> of debate. And I don't, we don't need to take that up at this juncture, I don't mm. think, necessarily. But there's a, a right. passage of yours that I just have to read, which is that children matter simply because they matter. They are our fellow humans, albeit smaller ones, with differing levels of need. In fact, they are us. We are us. They are already as well as forthcoming. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, 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 that is, I think, it's underlined three times in my book here. I just want to say quickly, it was incredibly helpful for me to read that song. No, like fantastic. That we're calling it a song, yeah. not a chapter. In thinking about how to speak mm-hmm, intergenerationally mm-hmm. with my younger patients, not children, but in the early 20s. And mm. too often I find <laughs> myself, whether in my inner dialogue or in the spoken words between us or what they're saying, collapsing into Mm -hmm. kind of the cliched modes of thinking, Mm -hmm. like we're all doomed. There's nothing we can do, a despairing mode or some form of dissociation. And so this felt like, oh my God, I can find Mm -hmm. a way into my experience Mm -hmm. of this without finding myself saying the Mm -hmm. cliche Mm -hmm. things that quite honestly sick of hearing myself think. So thank you. Yeah, it's funny because I thank you for saying so. I mean, I, you know, it's a little awkward in that, like, I wrote that whole chapter. I mean, this is the way time goes with writing. And Ken, we can talk about, I was really moved by, in some ways, your description of patience with waiting for the play to be activated or not dead with your four-year-old patient. I was thinking about, you know, the discourse in my book about the time that writing takes or something and like the patience and how in some ways one of the difficulties of writing, especially the climate chapter, had to do with watching time go by as you're writing and not feeling as kind of blasé about how long it was taking. But a lot of things are ending right now and in endings, there's great opportunity and a lot of ways are, are no longer working. And I think giving at least a parcel of that sentiment to people younger and who, as you say, Kim will be facing these issues can also back to the community thing, I think become a sense of belonging of being part of something, which is a great new, is a great new turn and whose success or not success is in some ways beyond the point, because the idea is like, how do we live a livable life and do the best we can while we're here? I mean, I heard a climate activist say the other day, you know, that they had realized that probably all of their, some activism was probably going to maybe be responsible for like a 0.001% degree alteration. And they were like, but I'll take it. You know what I mean? <laughs> because it's not enough. It's far from enough. But it's like every degree point is made up of 0.001%. And so to turn up our nose at amelioration on this account is uh, not wise. I feel like there is a move 
toward the we. I often teach We the Animals, the Justin Torres book and a, a course that I teach at the mm-hmm. postdoctoral institute at NYU. Mm-hmm. When I see former students of mine, mind you, it's, it's the only mm-hmm. piece of fiction that I teach. Everything else is theory throughout that whole 15 weeks. When I see former students of mm-hmm. mine, that's what they remember. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it leads me to think that I should actually, Romy, you may have been in that class. I, see I you, was. Not in your <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it is the thing yeah. that students remember. And of course, it's a book written in the first person plural in a remarkable kind of mm-hmm. way. And I do see in my younger patients, like what Romy is saying, my patients in their 20s, there is more of a, even if you keep class, if you factor class, right? These are primarily upper middle class humans, people. And that would be true of my older patients as well. My younger patients are much more attuned to the we, I would say, than are my older patients. They're much more attuned to collective or community-based mm-hmm. projects? I think maybe, I don't know. I don't think I'm worried. I, I certainly know that like, at least in my sphere, which is like, well, let's just say this isn't really my sphere, but like certainly in, in whatever relation I retain to academia, surely, yes, obviously everything is about a we and a collective. But I guess my concern is that, and this is one something I like in your work, whether it's insisting that like play has terror in it or something, but that like a we, I mean, we know this, but a we Mm -hmm. is not, Mm. it's not an unbumpy place at all. In fact, it's like the beginning of bumpiness. (laughs) I think that the way that people, there's something about the coarseness, about the discourse, about the, the individual and the collective that I don't think has, that I feel like, in at least in the circles I run in, the desire to not say something like say for example I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday and she was saying you know I fucking hate this mask now I know I'm not ever supposed to say I hate wearing it but I fucking hate it and like can't I just say two things are true I will wear it where I have to and I fucking hate it you know and I was like yeah like I think that's a fine thing to say but there was a real anxiety in her talking being like I'm only t- I'm just telling you this behind closed doors just maybe like that that's kind of to me like a kind of when someone has that kind of anxiety, they feel like part of the anxiety is, is that if they fall out of something that they're supposed to say to please the collective, then they then, then they have to fall into, you know, like some like horrible substack column or something. And suddenly they're this like reactionary in training or something. And I, I think it's more just kind of how is there a better we that doesn't that doesn't, it can't escape those kinds of anxieties, but how can we allow them to be more constitutive of it instead of its disruption, you know? So, you know, I had a, a supervisee this morning telling me that she had several cases of young teenage non-binary and struggling with those issues. And she was wondering why she was seeing so many all of a sudden. And I was thinking, and I don't know what you guys think about this, that We're at a moment right now where there is that tension between how much the Mm -hmm. I is defining our identity and how much the we from the outside Mm -hmm. is defining Mm -hmm. our identity. So it's kind of like Mm -hmm. a kind of state that's very pertinent to Mm -hmm. this cultural moment. Yeah, and I think maybe what I would say there is how can we have a we before Twitter? (laughs) I mean, that might that might be that might be the better that that might be the most succinct way to say it, right? Is that there there cannot be 
the contradiction and the complication. And Torres's book, We the Animals, is exquisite in the portrayal of contradiction and violence and um, the we coming apart mm-hmm. in very profound, profound ways. So, yes, absolutely. I agree with you. And I, I think what I would say there is that in the realm of gender, gender is always coming at us. And to what degree younger people feel non-binary gender coming at them and then negotiating that space with respect to their, however it is that they're coalescing an identity. I think there's probably a a fair degree of variation. But that's one of the points that Butler makes, I think, so beautifully and over and over and over again, right, is that gender makes us, we don't make gender. And we are made and made and made. We are daily made. And I should venture that those young people are, are being made as well. And there will be a set of complications and contradictions and complex lives that will will follow therefrom. Yeah. Yeah. I have a question that I really want to ask Maggie, You're burning anyway. So Maggie, how much you've written so beautifully about maternal life and matronality, I guess I would say. And I am on an, in another project trying to mm. write about the paternal and in particular erotic mm. dimensions of patronality that are not mm-hmm. even ever uttered. Save daddy. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So that's really good. So, but, you know, part of that, as I do that work, I understand requires a radical rethinking of the capacities mm-hmm. for men to care for children. Part of what we presume mm-hmm. is that men have no capacity to do it. They're not interested. They're mm-hmm. not able. In fact, mm-hmm. they're even harmful or worse is where everyone always comes mm-hmm. to. Even a theorist like Winnicott, who writes so beautifully often mm-hmm. about maternal experience, just, you know, in a kind of offhanded way, dismisses mm-hmm. fathers as just bumbling idiots. So uh, you make a point at one point in the book about the need for care and responsibility and how it should circulate, you mm-hmm. say, apart from the maternal body, mm-hmm. as well as apart from biological ties. And I would also say there, circulate away from what you will mm-hmm. later refer to as edical regularity. And I just am curious, <laughs> as you look around, how hopeful are you? About the future of paternal care, kind of, or like, or the, or the, or. Well, about the possibility that care will move, a, will circulate beyond the maternal. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, <laughs> speaking of paradox, I think that the part of the book where I'm talking about that and talking about it vis-a-vis Fred Moten and him talking about, you know, calling it for like what he calls like the socialization of the maternal and the paradox that I feel like I'm trying to hold is in part that I, yes, I hope for it too. And yes, certainly cis men or other masculine identified people can do the work of caring that's not harmful and that's even substantive and perhaps central. And then all that said, I think that the the paradox is that, I mean, I think there are two paradoxes at hand. One is that a lot of the ways that that care 
can become split in a kind of like 50-50 fashion or even like a 90-10 fashion or whatever sometimes gets entwined with that the, there are some things I mean like I think I named breastfeeding in the book of like that like cannot be split 50-50 and that there's some kind of like way of contending with the paradox of how can care be socialized or spread out while acknowledging there may be some elements that are not necessarily able to be, you know, that they're sacrificed. And that leads to the second part of the paradox, which is, you know, women for a long time, and, and I think still, and I even see this replicated in my very progressive, sometimes queer life as a parent, is that to truly give up the centrality of this role is requires a, it's like leaping off a cliff and hoping that people will be there for a labor that is at present still remains so invisibilized often as to not be comprehensible. And I don't think a lot of people are willing to make that leap off the cliff because I think there's still a lack of understanding. So I think that there's a greater project, which is a long-term feminist project, which is rendering visible the deliberately invisibilized work of care. I'm fascinated by your project. It seems utterly important. I can't offer a good read of like how hopeful or not hopeful I would be, except for to say that to link up with the other question before about like different identifications about gender that young people are making, I think in, in every sphere of life in and around changes in gender, gender allocations, gender identifications, I think we're going to have to be willing to deal with a lot of unknowing that we haven't yet engaged with. And a lot of the reactionary politics you see, some of it's just normal cultural, I mean, just like cultural war crap, like find the thing that pulls the best and then wail on that community, like pick the trans kids, they seem the least able to defend themselves and we'll get a good applause line at CPAC. So there's all that. But on the other hand, I do think that there are real anxieties, a real unknowing, and that we need, kind of like with the climate, I think we need, and Ken, I think this is why your work is so important, and we need people to like as with my kid in bed, to like hold our hands together as we make these leaps, because they are leaps into unknowing about what's to come. And I don't and I don't think we know what's to come with maternal labor socialized in any real serious fashion yet. I still don't think we know, but onwards we go. So I think we're also, just to circle back to the beginning, we're partly talking here about an aesthetics of care, which Maggie, you write about in your first song, and which in psychoanalytic conversations comes up in relation to Christopher Bolas's work, right, who talks about an aesthetics of care. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say I'm the oldest fogey here in this conversation, (laughs) but I was mothered by my father and he was a really good caregiver. And so my maternal aesthetic is Mm -hmm. kind of a paternal aesthetic and it worked fine. So I'm just Mm -hmm. putting in a plug. Mm -hmm. It can work. Yeah. And I would also throw out there that since I live with someone who doesn't really conceive of Mm -hmm. their care as either maternal or paternal. And since I know a lot of queer parents, more and more people who inhabit that space, whether it's butch parents or trans women or trans men parents or just queer parents, undefined, I think that that realm, as has been, as you know, Ken, as we were talking about earlier, the Mm. case for a long time about what queer things can have to teach us. It's not a utopia. And I really kind of chafe against people being like, oh, it must be so great. Like in your marriage, then nothing's defined. I'm like, you know, as you say, gender makes us, gender comes at us. We don't live in these, it's not a glorious unscripted space. That said, the labor of care that all of these non- or, or I wouldn't say non-maternal or non-paternal, but fluidly identified with either, with either can sh- are showing a lot of 
a lot of possibility and a lot of things about care that exceed particular gendered formations. So, Yeah, I, I would agree with that. You have this way of capturing it so well. At one point you say, there is no no. Like when something happens, it has mm-hmm. to be taken care of. You cannot say no. You, mm-hmm. can't, you can't ignore your phone in the middle of an interview if you have to get your mm-hmm. kid from the school yeah. nurse, right, let's say. Yeah. So there is no no. I, the no no really st- mm-hmm. stayed with me. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, yeah. It, and it made me think about rendering visible, this, as you just said, that kind of care, that capacity, and that preoccupation and devotion that allows for the no no. Mm-hmm. And I... How that gets shared in any family configuration Mm. is an intriguing thing to think about, for sure. But I very much like what you said about it, that that something about this care needs to be rendered visible, cataloged. Mm. I hope to be in touch with your project, Ken. It sounds really fascinating. I'd love to see it. So our time has come to an end. We have to stop now. Thank you for listening to Couched with Drs. Billy Pivnik and Romy Redding, brought to you by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association. 